Meow. This is Tanya Todd, writer, producer, and soon-to-be director of Morning Sacrifice, a tragic romance where a vampire poses as a detective to help the woman he loves search for her missing husband. This sensuous detective noir short film explores how even the most altruistic love can turn monstrous. If this story strikes a titillating nerve, or if you simply love vampires, consider contributing to our crowdfunder at seedandspark.com. Funding for this film is supported in part by Nevada Arts Council and National Endowment of the Arts, but we still have a long way to go. Check out our enticing incentives. Pick the choice that excites you most. Join me, and we shall make a dark and delicious love story. That's Morning Sacrifice at seedandspark.com. Meow, and welcome to the first episode of this year's Banned Books Conversations. I'm your host, Tanya Todd. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who has helped make this series what it is, starting with J.P. Butler for his production assistance, Mike Burton of Genuine Chit Chat for the graphics and platform sharing, Veronica Clash for her prep work behind the scenes and continued support, and to the ladies of Femon, who let me hijack the schedule all week and of course, this wouldn't be what it is without our amazing guests. With that, let's get started. We're here to talk about banned books, li- literary works that have been removed from a library shelf or school curriculum. Over the course of Banned Books Week, the series will cover seven different books, the reasons they were banned, and the value in reading them. The first book from this year's series is All Books Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson. And this isn't so much a book review as it is a conversation about All Boys Aren't Blue as a banned book. I should warn listeners that there may be spoilers ahead, but before we get to that, let's meet today's radical readers. Wayne, let's start with you. Please tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Thank you, Tanya. My name is Wayne Goodman. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I've lived most of my life. Uh, Before I retired, I was a psychiatric nurse, and I sat and listened to many people's stories similar to that of the author. So uh, it was refreshing to see it in print rather than listening to it. Uh, These are my various books. And I'm also the host of the podcast Queer Words. That is conversations with queer identified authors about their works and lives. And you can find that anywhere you get podcasts or the website is queerwords.org. Thank you, Tanya. Brandon. Hello, I'm Brandon Mead and I'm a writer of queer fiction and queer personal essays. I'm also an author host and a bookseller here in Seattle, Washington. I'm the founder of Wayward Pansy and also Queer Books, which focuses on showcasing queer stories. I do have to ask, what's Wayward Pansy? I love that title. Wayward Pansy Press uh, primarily produces designs um, for coloring books that are inclusive. Um, The big title that started it was a um, Pride Celebration coloring book, and I donate that to um, Pride Celebrations around the U.S. and around the world to just print out those coloring pages and offer them to family-friendly events. And it kind of went from there where uh, underrepresented queer stories were kind of being presented to me. And I was like, let's put them together and let's get them out there. So there's a lot of material that is... 
focused on coloring pages, activity books, things like that. But then it's moving into prose at this point. That's really cool. Thank you. Blake. Yeah, hi, I'm Blake Biles. I'm a trainee psychotherapist in London. Uh, I was on the Band Books um, podcast last year for Genderqueer. And uh, I'm part of the Comics in Motion kind of extended family, like uh, Tanya. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy to be here and happy to have a chance to read these great books. So what is it about the Band Books conversation that interests you? And we'll start with Brandon. I feel like anytime I hear there's a banned book, I'm like, all right, I got to know. Like, I got to know. I have to know why. Like, what was it that made a certain group of people decide that this was offensive to them or that they believed other people shouldn't read it? I mean, and that's that's really the conversation, right, is other people determining what somebody else should read. And being a bookseller, I have the opportunity to either order a book in and see it or go find it on the shelf because in Seattle, we're pretty good about like, we have a whole band book section, you know, we're like, bam, books right here, come and read them. Nice. Um, so I, I love to flip through them and be like, what was it? What was the thing? And, you know, finding that there does seem to be a common theme of what certain groups of people do want to ban. How about you, Wayne? Well, I don't like people telling me what I can and cannot do. I think most people are like that. And I understand there are parents that are concerned about their children, and they may not want their children to read certain books, which is their prerogative. But I don't believe that parent should tell me what I or my children should read or not read. And that's my interest as an author. Uh I, I just think telling people what not to read is not a good idea, uh, although banned books get a lot of sales. So I'm wondering, how do I get my books banned? <laughs> how about you, Blake? Yeah, I, I, it sounds like it's quite similar for me as well. I um, My family might have typified me as having an issue with authority as a young person. And I don't think much of that's changed. I, through my studies, I've had a, a strong interest in like hegemonic structures, social constructionism. Um, and so, yeah, so as well as like cults and authoritarian politics and religion. So, yeah, anything like this where it's you're told you can't do something that's just like God does, that's like, I'm, I'm just interested in it. Yeah. So we'll start with you this time, Blake. Have you had an experience with a book that offended you? No, I mean, last time last time you asked me this question, um, I, I, I think I said just like the only thing that's really offended me has been if the, the book has been poorly written or, or just, uh, there's been some like dramaturgical kind of misadventure that I haven't really agreed with. But I... I that's probably uh, to do with a lack of my reading um, stuff that might offend me, perhaps. I, I, I could say that I might read something that would offend me, but I just haven't, I haven't got there yet. And how about you, Wayne? Well, I don't think I've ever read a book that the subject offended me or the contents. I'm generally offended by people's lack of writing skills. <laughs> Uh, more than the content of the book. Um, I I think of myself as fairly open-minded, and it's pretty rare that I would look at a subject of a book and be offended, unless it's something that advocates violence or danger or, or some other 
activity that would not be for the betterment of society. Brandon. Yeah, I mean, agreeing with that, Wayne, I think the only thing I've ever really seen that offended me is the misinformation and a lot of the right-wing leaning books that we get in that are kind of like written margin to margin, top to bottom, like there's no real formatting in it. Um, and it's it's not just the content that I've skimmed through, which is is heartbreaking because it's all like propaganda and it's, it's all uh, misinformation. But we also believe in the freedom of information. And so we do sell those books in our store and people do request those books, even if we don't stock them. And they also come in with a script where they are ready to yell about us not having the book. But we often will stock it and we will put up a sign that says we believe in the freedom of information, which I do agree with. I mean, people have the right to read whatever they want, even if I don't agree with it. Um, and while it may offend me, it doesn't change my belief that they should be able to access it. Um, I just hope that they learn at some point to balance that perspective because I have skimmed through these books and it's hard. It's really hard to read. And um, I think trying to go, wow, I really don't agree with what's in here, but I also believe it should exist is really difficult. But it's it's where I've kind of landed as a bookseller. So sort of on that note, Brandon, is there any scenario in which you feel a, that banning a book is the correct course of action? And if so, what is it? I would say generally no. Um, I do think that we should not we should not ban books, but we should include reader reader advisories. Um, the same way we tag things now with this could be, include misinformation. This could be triggering. Um, I think we need to do the same with print media. You know, we're we're starting to do that more and more on the internet, and we definitely need to do it with print media. There needs to be something in the the start of it that says this may contain misinformation, this may contain um, adult content, or you know, and who deems adult content, right? But um, scenarios that could be troubling to people, and I think that in in a lot of circumstances, that's the right way to go is just make sure people are kind of aware. And we were talking about this earlier, how you you don't want to watch a trailer because you don't want to spoil the movie. If people don't want to know what's in it and they just want to dive head first, they have the right to just go right past that advisory and just go straight in. So I think that's maybe the best course of action we have at this stage. What are your thoughts on that, Blake? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I don't think that there's any real reason for something to be banned in that way, but that some kind of yeah, trigger warning, content warning, for, for, for just for context, um, would be useful. Just to kind of, especially if it's like, been written from some time ago as well and like not to say it's not i'm not one of those people who's like oh it was of, the, of its time right i think that um you had ourselves then and you have ourselves now and it's still there's still a problem but yeah i think a bit of context would be useful i mean if you think about back in, in the days of the video store and you'd have the adult video section you know maybe maybe it's like you might access certain books from certain places maybe um but no, I don't see any real reason for a book to be banned. How about you, Wayne? Well, yes, I think that uh, trigger warnings are growing for books now that when you open the book, it'll tell you uh, this book contains and it lists things that might offend people. But we have this in the entertainment industry. We've had ratings for movies for over half a century, and now it's moved to television. And even uh, CDs have, if it's music, and video games have ratings and content warnings. I, I don't see why we can't do that for books. And it might help 
quell the need to ban them. If it says right on the cover, this book is not for readers under 18 for these reasons or something like that. But I don't know. That might be a step too far. <laughs> so how does the concept of slippery slope fit in with the desire to ban books? And we'll start with you, Wayne. Well, I first of all, I don't like the concept of slippery slope to begin with. Um you know, once we start with one person, it leads to two, three, four, five. Eh, I, I don't know that I subscribe to that, but I understand that, that we're looking for some kind of central ground that we can all agree upon to present, uh, sorry, to uh, protect certain readers from being exposed to content that maybe the parents don't want their children to see. Um I just, like I said, I don't think banning a book is the right idea. I'm going to stick with, let's put something on the cover that says you might not want your children to read this because it contains these subjects. How about you, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, with that whole idea of slippery slope, who's to decide? I, I think it, it's that's the hard part is whose hands are we putting this in to be the arbiter of what is acceptable content and what is not acceptable content. Um, and so as soon as we start going, well, this is fine, but this is not, it, you know, it all depends on that group of people and their particular agenda. Um, and that can go both ways. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think that there's, you know, this way to go, well, that's okay, but that's not because then it just continues to, you know, we put more in this pile, more in that pile. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know that that's helpful in the conversation. Blake? Yeah, well, I think anyone who's kind of promoting that slippery slope arguments, kind of telling on themselves really, aren't they? Because they're saying once you've got a precedent here, it will all just follow like that. And so they're kind of saying that there's never going to be a debate along the way it's just all or nothing and it's really kind of showing yeah telling off their kind of authoritarian philosophy because it's just like clean sweeps don't have to think about it just sit back and relax and we'll make the decisions um so yeah i think that the, the slippery slope thing is just a, a very poor argument hmm. well in recent years there's been a pattern in the themes that get books banned and I'm wondering, what do you think this pattern says about where we are as a society? And we'll start with Blake. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a podcast, I think, about the politics and all this stuff. I, you see it creeping, you know, this, this thing about the banned books, you see it creeping over here and, and uh, the New Zealand and Australia. The, um, even just down the road here today, um, I was talking to a friend, there's a local pub down here, but they have the uh, drag readings, you know, and, and uh, um, uh, children's books and stuff for families to come to. And there's been a massive series of protests there, buses turning up with kind of fascist, horrible people throwing bricks in the windows and stuff, counter protests. And this is just like a little neighborhood pub, you know. Um, and I think uh, it's been backed, the, the protests have been backed by Turning Point UK, which you'll you probably know Turning Point has originated in the US. And yeah, just um, that that hold that they're trying to get these wedge issues and really stir up you know, people, you know, who could really be thinking about um, other things in their life. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's just a it's just a way to really drum up support for just the wrong people. Mm. Wayne. Well, I think there's quite a few books that were printed or written years ago, which if they tried to get published today, would never see the light of day. Uh, Mark Twain's writings come to mind. I don't think he could get those books published today. Uh, the Bible has mm. a lot of things in it that if you didn't tell people that they're reading the Bible are horribly offensive. But, you know, you can go to almost any bookstore and find a Bible. There's murder, there's adultery, there's incest. There's all kinds of things that if somebody was heavy handed would say, oh, I don't want my child reading this, but yet it's the Bible. So, and it has also been banned. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, in my household yet. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it, it's perspective. As somebody was saying, you know, who's going to tell us what we can and cannot read? Maybe it's your cat uh, says, I don't want you reading that. But I mean, it's a matter of perspective because some person can read Mark Twain and say, oh, that was a fun romp. And someone else reads it and goes, do you know how offensive that is to my people? perspective Brandon I think there's a theme there's very much a theme right now with the books that are getting on the list most recently they're all primarily by authors of color mostly black authors queer authors especially if you hit two of those things at the same time that book is immediately getting on that list and it it just is so telling of the stories that they don't want told and is it the fear of humanizing um, people in the eyes of like, you know, high white society that loves things the way they are and doesn't want those things challenged or changed? Because if you let, you know, young people read these stories and go, oh, my gosh, you know, like I didn't know or, you know, I wasn't, you know, they just weren't made aware of the situation. And here it is finally in print for them to see and experience in that sort of a way. And it's going to change them as people. And in a and hopefully in a better way. And I think like that's why they keep ending up on the band's book list. It's like, no, this challenges this way of life that we're trying to cultivate. And that sounds a little, you know, conspiracy theorist, I suppose. But how how do these same books keep ending up on the list? How do we already know when a book is about um challenging gender roles, challenging um, you know, like um you know race theory all these sort of things how do we already know that's going to end up on the banned books list and it's because they don't want those stories told they don't want them brought into the light and it's terrifying so what is the value in reading books that might be considered offensive and i'll start with you brandon those are stories we have to know you know like considered offensive by you know by whom but we need to know why are these people so offended? What is it that challenges them? And if it challenges them, um, how do we, you know, help this this you know fight the good fight, so to speak? How do we help these books go out there and stop being suppressed? So I want to know what the content is. I want to know what's in that book. I want to know how I can help. So I think it's that's why it's always worth our time to see why a book ended up on that list. Blake. Yeah, I agree with what Brandon's saying. I think it's like, you know, the more the more different experiences you come across, the the, the more capacity you have for, for empathy, not not just for other people, but for yourself, because you might see parts of yourself in these different stories that you didn't see before. It fights like a monoculture. Um, 
you know, there's so many people struggling with the mental health. They're kind of experiencing cognitive dissonance when they listen to the media. You know, they're kind of their bubble and their world. The world outside seems big and scary and it doesn't all quite resonate the right way. And perhaps just if they opened up their, their kind of blinkers a little bit and absorbed different stories from different people, um, they'd be able to kind of reconcile the world outside and their place within it a bit more, um, just to kind of get that richer human tapestry. Wayne? Well, for me, it's fear. Fear motivates this. People are afraid of something happening that they don't control. Uh, and I, for one, have read heterosexual books, but it did not cause me to be heterosexual. And uh, there are people who are, uh, I've read black books. I'm not black. I didn't turn black. But it did give me more compassion for people who aren't like me. Uh, for me, it, it's a fear. And what gets me most is that and I'm going to guess here, I don't know that this is true, but I sense most people who want something banned haven't even read the book that they're talking about. The The one striking example for me was the movie, The Da Vinci Code. Having read the book, it's very anti-Catholic. And the movie, less so. In fact, I found the movie a little too pro-Catholic. I think they twisted it too much. But when I went to see it, there was a crowd of people protesting the movie. And I asked one of them, have you seen it? They said, no. Why would I watch that filth? And I said, but do you realize that it does not contain the information you're protesting? They had no idea because they hadn't seen it. So we're going to take a stand on something that we have no information about. Somebody told me. Yeah. So what effect should an author's intentionality versus the reader's interpretation have when discussing banned books? And, you know, we're going to assume that the reader has actually read it in these situations. And we'll start with you, Wayne. Well, I think that authors generally like to, pardon the use of this word, but titillate their readers. Otherwise, why read the book? We want to include information or scenarios or experiences that take the reader out of their everyday life. Otherwise, it's a cookbook. And cookbooks, you know, maybe they're fun to look at, but they're not really fun reading most of the time. And I think it's inherent upon an author to include stuff, material, experiences. And you and I, Tanya, were uh, both on a discussion of research you and I do lots of research before we write our books, and we want to share that with people. And if I find something that I write mostly historical fiction that took place in the past, and I want to include that, but it might be offensive, well, I want it to be authentic. I want it to be honest. When somebody reads this book and they read about something that happened in the past, they might go, oh, oh, but it's authentic. I, I wouldn't want to candy coat it or make it uh, less than for the sake of the reading. So uh, the, my first thing I thought of was Portnoy's Complaint, which uh, I'm older than everybody here. And this book came out in the mid 20th century. And it's 
a Jewish young man's way in finding himself, finding his way in the world. And there's a sequence where he masturbates with some liver that he finds in the refrigerator. And then when he's finished, he puts it back in the refrigerator and then the family has it for dinner. Well, okay. You know, I think there are people that find that offensive, but Philip Roth put that there to evoke an emotion, to evoke a feeling from the reader, which in my opinion, he did because I'm thinking about this section of his book from 50 years ago. And that's what we want. We want our readers to read it, feel something, remember it, tell people, sell books. And you never need to apologize around me for being titillating. <laughs> Blake, same question. Yeah, I like what Wayne said about honesty and authenticity. I think like as a writer, I'm not a writer myself, I mean, I write academic literature, um, but like, it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about being maybe offended about poorly written books, and like, that's the thing that you can smell the most, as if there's like, it's not authentic, and it's not coming from an honest place. Um, so what the writer has to give is like, that's their, that's their expression, and it's out there for us to take as we please. But it's like once it's out there, like we all have our own perspective on it, and that, that that's fine. Um, I I also like what Wayne said about um this thing about writing something that could be obscene, but like that was the point, you know. I think a lot of the people who kind of get um really upset about these things, they just anything that is obscene or offensive that blows it all up but then it's like but then you're not really telling a story of nuance it is just like yeah as Wayne says a, a, a cookbook it's, it's like vanilla it's what was the point you want to be able to provoke and and challenge be challenged well i guess that's a, i guess that's a problem that's why we're here because these people don't like to be challenged um but no i i i'm happy to be provoked by the author that's fine brandon yeah, I, I can agree with that. And it made me think of the, the the story that Wayne mentioned about the liver made me think of a story I can never forget, which is by um, Chuck Palahniuk, and it's called Guts, and it's about different masturbation mishaps. And I think there's authenticity in that because, yeah, is it is it kind of shocking? You know, this is the story that when he reads it in a, you know, like a, a public setting, people tend to pass out. Uh, this is like his big, you know, thing. He loves it when people pass out when he reads that story. Um, but it's it's not to say things like that don't happen. And so there is this sort of authenticity in the pages of like, yeah, people do weird stuff behind closed doors. Um, so that reminded me of of that particular thing. And, and maybe people are seeing themselves on the page. Maybe somebody did, you know, like have an experience with a carrot and then put it back in their, their family's fridge or liver or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of stories like that. So it's got to be happening. Um, but also when I originally read this question, what I thought about was being in middle school. And um, I was lucky that when I was in middle school and high school, there was this big resurgence of like, what are the banned books of this time? Let's read them. So I got to read Animal Farm as a, you know, as a class assignment. I got to read um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And I remember it being a very intense book and us having this in-depth conversation and I, I want to say seventh grade and talking about Maya Angelou's intention with um, particularly the rape that's depicted in the book. And it was like 
it's in here because things like that happen, not because she's trying to shock you, not because she's trying to hurt you emotionally. It's because it's awareness. It's like things like that do happen. And so I think there was an interview with her where she said something along those lines of like people that are offended by this want to pretend it doesn't exist. And so I think like, you know, when it comes to intention from an author, maybe it is to titillate or maybe it's to showcase, you know, something, put it on the page that isn't normally there. And where did you go to school? Oddly enough, I went to school in Florida, but I just had like a really cool group of teachers that I don't know if they snuck it in or what it was, or if it was just somehow in the curriculum of that period of time in the like late nineties that it was like, let's squeeze these books in here. Um, so I feel really lucky to have gotten that part of an education because it, it definitely shaped uh, my experience with literature, uh, you know, as a reader and as a writer, I don't think I would have wanted to become a writer if it it hadn't been for that part of the curriculum and being able to read those books that were kind of just getting off the band list at that point. May yeah. I follow yeah. up on something? Of course. Um, thank you for bringing that up, Brendan. You made me think of the color purple. And I am so looking forward to this newer version that I hope is more honest and more true to the book because... If you've seen the original, you know that they removed a very important part of the story to make it palatable for people in the mid-20th century. And I, 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 I hope that this version that's coming out later this year is Alice's story that she wanted to tell, not the Hollywood whitewash, well, I don't want to say whitewashing, but... Uh, downplaying of the story yeah that I, that's a book i'm considering for next year so you'll be first on my list to ask for that wayne <laughs> so now let's switch to today's band book all boys aren't blue consists of a series of essays about george m johnson's journey growing up queer and black it received positive reviews from kirkus booklist publishers weekly and favorable shout-outs in Huffington Post and the New York Times. It's also the second most banned book in the U.S. Blake, you jumped at the opportunity to discuss this book. Why is that? Um, I really enjoyed uh, the experience uh, we had last time with Genderqueer, um, and I was looking for something similar. Um, and yeah, I'm so glad I jumped on this. So it was really good. Yeah. Um, I I hadn't heard about it until we were putting in, in these lists in the Discord. Um, and so I looked up a few of them, and yeah, this one felt like it resonated. It felt um, a bit like Moonlight to me, um, like in that kind of same kind of territory. And yeah. Moonlight, uh, George mentions Moonlight in the book. Um, and so, yeah, I was really keen to get involved. Wow, because when I posted that list, you immediately wanted to review this one, and I I just assumed that you knew about it already. So it's interesting that yeah, just... I'm just keen, keen, keen to help out, and yeah, keen to get involved and learn more. Brandon, how did you first learn about the book? It's been on the shelves in the store since it came out. And every time I've passed by, I've been like, I got to read that book. There's something about the cover design, which is beautiful, but also the title, because just 
the title appeals to me because every time I read, I'm like, yeah, that's me. Like all that, I, I just totally, it just completely resonated with me. Even though I hadn't read it yet, I was like, I know I'm going to get something out of this book. So I was so excited when you gave me the opportunity to read it because I have such a long list of books to be read that when I need like a deadline and I'm like, okay, I got to read this book. And I enjoyed it so, so much. And I'm so glad that I'm going to be able to like recommend it now having read it in its entirety to people and um, be able to like reference certain like points in, in the, uh, the the memoir to explain to them why it's so fantastic how about you Wayne I just enjoy talking about the subject uh the book was something I was unfamiliar with going in but now that I've read it I, I have a lot to say about it and um I'm, I'm ready to discuss I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book Julian is a mermaid mm -hmm. so I found out about this book because that is julian is a mermaid is something that i gave to my sister's children and she found this book and said julian's all grown up <laughs> you know <laughs> because it does have a great cover and it it's eye catching but there's a lot more important stuff on the inside than just that really cool cover so prior to reading the book what were the elements that attracted your attention brandon um I think it was the response people were having to it um, that always interested me. The fact that it was on the banned books list and that it continued to, you know, make that list and it was the second most banned book. Um, I had to know, but uh, yeah, the I think the the title is is always going to be the thing I go back to because I just think it's an amazing title and the author really um, sums that that idea up very well in the end spoiler but um it's uh yeah it, it just kept pulling me in every time that i that i saw it and that i saw the sort of the themes that i assumed were going to be in it and it did not disappoint how about you wayne well i didn't really know much about it um i'd heard of it and uh now i know having read it i, I do know more about it and having looked a little bit at george's life um i'll, I'll just leave it at that okay and then blake yeah, like I hadn't, I hadn't uh, heard about it before, as I said. Um, but yeah, the title, um, as Brandon says, is very evocative. The the cover was lovely. Um, the the fact that it was like marketed towards a young adult market, um, I was really interested in that how it would be framed. Um, and yeah, that kind of moonlight vibe it made me think of Chiron as a kid. You know the struggles, and I was thinking like what. I'd like to hear some more perspectives, um, other other experiences. Um, it's a book I would have been very interested in reading as a as a kid myself. So Wayne, how do you feel about the term memoir manifesto? Well, that is interesting. Uh, as I say, I host a podcast and I talk with a wide variety of authors. And uh, the first name that comes to my mind is Brontes Purnell. And I don't know if you've read any of his books, but his also tend to be uh, somewhat memoiristic, somewhat manifesto. Uh, as I read it, I didn't think of it as a manifesto. I think the last chapter is more of a, um, a drumbeat than anything. I, I, it's To me, it was more of a memoir. But I understand using the word manifesto because in some ways it is a call to action 
And uh, I hope that someday enough people read it, understand it, and accept what's happened in our world and make changes in their behavior for the better of society. Mm. Brandon, what did you think of the term? I think it's so clever, memoir manifesto. And uh, if there's any part manifesto for me, it's that on a lot of the chapters, like you said, Wayne, call to action, um, there's either like a lesson or like call to act, call to action of like, I told you the story reader, but now I'm going to bring it together and explain to you how this applies to your life. Like when they're talking about their name and the journey of their name. And at the end, it's like, you maybe you didn't know that you don't have to have this name that, that you were given at birth. Maybe you can have any name you want. And I think that's perhaps the manifesto part is just letting young people know that they have these choices and that they can make these choices or if they've experienced these certain things, then it's okay. Um, so I think that's the the tie-in for me as, as far as it being a manifesto. I'd love to see more memoir manifestos. Honestly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Blake? Yeah, I mean, I like memoirs. I like manifestos. So the combination of this, I think it makes um, both sides more readable, you know. Um, I... I get the manifesto part and um, I, I kind of saw it throughout where he kind of was always reiterating about the need for visibility um, and to, to, to feel like you have agency to, 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 to live your truth. Um, and in part, perhaps it was a way of being a bit humble because often he would say like, oh, does it feel a bit narcissistic to write my story? But, the fact that I'm doing it for other people so that they can perhaps see themselves in it or have the strength to yeah, live the truth um, makes it worth it. If it could help one person, you know, it was mm. worth it. And uh, yeah, so I see the manifesto in there for sure. In response to censorship, George M. Johnson said, we owe it to the next generations to give them the tools they need to build a better, more robust, truthful world. Books are those tools. Now that you've all read the book, what do you think made it polarizing to the point of being banned? And we'll start with you, Brandon. You did cover this a little bit, but now that you have the the actual, you know, you were saying you've read it, you can recommend it with the information. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if anything scares people when it comes to these topics, it's honesty. And George M. Johnson was nothing if uh, not honest in this book about um, some very personal uh, topics, you know, ranging from the journey with their their name down to, you know, um, not just sexuality, but sexual experiences. And I think honesty can really, really scare people. But when you read something that um, that authentic, I mean, you 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 can't do anything but respect it. And I think that's that's definitely what I'm going to tell people is like, this is a very honest book. And I think the author was very um, not just careful. I think they, you know, there's a lot of chapters where they went through and you could tell like the I'm I'm going to talk about you now that you're dead portion. I mean, not yeah. to give away too much, but that moved me in this way that was like you could tell they were going back and forth about I want to tell the story. I don't want to tell the story. How do I tell the story? Is this going to help somebody if I do tell it? And I think it is going to help a lot of people that it is included in the book. And I'm glad that they included that portion. 
and it's part of the journey. So it's like, how do I not include this part of the journey and keep it authentic? But I also don't want to talk about this. It's deep and it's hurtful and it's complex and confusing emotionally for them. You can tell that they're going through it on the page, um, but it is part of their journey. Absolutely. And to leave it out, I think you're right, would have made a difference to the entire thing. What are your thoughts, Blake? Yeah, the, the journey element is really important. I think there's examples where they say kind of where there might have been missteps, you know, like uh, at my point there's a mention of like, uh, oh, we were then gossiping about the other um, gay people in our uh, fraternity. I wasn't, I didn't know about outing at the time and, you know, I, I just seen how that could be, how that is problematic and, and I wouldn't have done that type of thing. There's, there's examples of that and, yeah, like uh, oh, to be in a queer affirming family who was still learning. Yeah. So, it's nice to kind of see those elements where there may be some missteps or faux pas or, or some actually just some wrong uh, behavior or attitudes. Um, but to put them in there is yet yeah, to just have a very honest take. And yeah, as I think it's the honesty that's polarizing because like we've kind of talked about already, you know, you have um, black story, you have a queer story, uh, the kind of exponential intersection of that is just really manifest that really riles people up. Um, you know, um, the the kind of patriarchy, um, they might be okay with those kind of characters, but as long as they're a caricature, you know, they stay in the lane that's been given to them by those in power or those who want to retain power. And so to have just a really honest story is, is a tough pill to swallow for a, a lot of people. I like what you said there, and I, I want to say I also appreciate the inclusion of stating that the family was very positive and very supportive and still got it wrong sometimes, but it wasn't because they were intentionally attempting to hurt anyone, because it wasn't even just George. It was, there were other people in the family it was, right. hey, we're still learning too. This is a journey for all of us and we're all going to make mistakes. But what they had was a center of love. And that's not the that's not the case for everyone in this situation. And that's right. It goes back to what Wayne was saying about fear. Yeah. Like if people are too scared to get it wrong, then they'll just like push it away. But like if you love someone, you don't mind putting your foot in your mouth or like tripping up a little bit because you're 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 working on making it better. Right. And it's important to know that these families do exist rather than it being just assumed, well, you're just not going to have a supportive family. They can be supportive. That doesn't mean everything is going to be smooth sailing. They're still going to be, we're still living in this society. It's not just the family, you know? <laughs> Wayne, what are your thoughts on this? Wow. <laughs> there was uh, an internet meme a few years back. There was a dress that some people looked at and thought it was blue. I remember. Some people looked at it and thought it was gold. Well, for me, that's how pornography is. Some people look at it and just see body parts moving together and are just can't handle that. Some people look at it and see an experience that somebody's sharing. And I would have loved to be in the meeting where the editors worked with George on these 
scenes where he talks about his sexual sexualized experiences either they're going oh no give us more give us more or he's saying can i put this in would this be okay and i would have loved to be in on that that discussion and i think some people can read this and see pornography where i don't i think he and the editors were extremely careful about what to include it's all about the emotions that were evoked when these things were happening. It, it wasn't sexual. It wasn't arousing to me to read, which pornography and erotica, that's the goal. They want to get you. I didn't find it arousing. Then again, maybe I saw the dress as gold and not blue. Um, and the supportive family thing that Blake was talking about it made me think about, uh, I don't know if you've seen Red, White and Royal Blue that when the son of the American president uh, talks to his mom about his sexuality and she's from Texas, she goes into this whole overly supportive thing. Well, we've got to do, don't forget to wear condoms. And, and it's like, she's very woke. And um, I would say that I don't think most children who are non-heteronormative want their parents being that big of an advocate for them. Yes, that's nice, honey. It would be good. But showering them with, oh, I read this book and you're going to go to these meetings with me. It's like, okay, mom. Yeah, that's enough. Thanks. You know, so it, it's a, you know, double it's awkward. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm thankfully when I had that discussion with my mother, the worst thing that she said to me is, but what about grandchildren? Well, she's got that now. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I, uh, it's the blue gold thing. People can look at this and see what they don't want to see. And that kind of segues into our next question about how opposition felt this book was obscene. We already kind of have your answer for that, Wayne. Brandon, what did you think? Do you think do you think this book was obscene? What qualifies a book as obscene? And is it possible to find value in obscene art or literature? Yeah, I mean, art's sometimes going to be obscene and there is value in that. Um, but I don't find this book or any of the uh, the writing to be obscene. I think that, uh, you know, like Wayne said, uh, the the words were chosen very carefully. There there weren't curse words. It wasn't erotic. It was um, a description of the events that occurred. But again, it was rooted in the emotion more than anything. And I think that's the value in it is um, for young people or people that are, that are older now but have been through those experiences to draw out of that. I mean, maybe somebody has gone through these like, you know, um, very similar experiences and didn't think that they would ever um, you know, talk about it with somebody else, let alone see somebody else being brave enough to put that uh, out there and publish it to the masses. How about you, Blake? I, uh, I just want to echo what the others said. I don't, um, I don't think it was obscene. I don't think it was pornographic. Um, George mentioned several times sex ed and, and the kind of dry, lackluster, heteronormative way in which it was um, it was done um, I kind of saw the descriptions as being kind of in a sex ed way it was very yeah you had descriptions of sexual um, relationships and um, 
genitals and all this type of thing, but it was not titillating to, to use the word uh, when used earlier. It was um it was just descriptive and more focused on the emotion. It was more focused on uh consent and agency, which I think is really crucial discussion for the target audience. Um and so in that regard, it's yeah, not obscene at all. Um I I don't think there's anything wrong with obscene art. You know, I, in my in my studies, um, we looked at um, you know like uh, Egon Schiele and um, and others from the early twentieth uh, century um, who were looking at like abjects. You know, they had problems with their body and that type of thing, and they were showing very obscene versions of, of themselves. Um, I think it's evokes it provokes and there's nothing wrong with it but i don't think that this book was obscene what was your emotional reaction to this book brandon can you hear me already i think my internet dropped earlier okay good um what was my emotional reaction george and i are around the same age and so seeing their experiences through um school at the the same ages that we would have been like going through middle school high school like all those different things watching them find their friend groups being afraid to come out going to college and and you know kind of finding those people but still kind of looking around I did have a very emotional reaction because even though we lived very different lives um just based on you know different parts of our background we lived very similar lives at the same time because I had to find that for myself as well and figure out when was the right time to come out how to come out what was going to happen if I did how my family was going to react how that was going to change my life um you know and in terms of family relationships you know when was the right time to start trying to date and navigate the awkwardness of it all. So yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a roller coaster ride of seeing myself on the page in, in certain moments, but also learning about this person's very real, very personal, you know, experience. You know, we're, we're getting to learn about a life. This isn't fiction. This isn't something that's a character. It's not filtered through a character. This is George. This is them. Um. So yeah, just knowing that this is where they ended up as this very successful author and journalist. Um, it, it's it's just wonderful to see that journey on the page. How about you, Blake? Yeah, I I think the the first act was the most difficult. Um, George recounting his childhood, and particularly at the very start with the um, the assault on him um I, that was very tough uh, i have a son that age um and it took me a few reads to kind of to, to kind of push through and i yeah i remember being a child and just really wanting to you know be loved be accepted and kind of that not always being there i, I never i never experienced the quite the trauma that george did in that way um but it was very, it was very um, moving. It was very evocative, and it really uh, set the way. I, I was just, I was really moved in the way that he could talk about the way he felt at the time, and then seeing it um, through an adult lens as well. And I think it really uh, set up uh, the memoir manifesto. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I think it was the first act that was really the, the hardest for me. Later on, um, there were some tough stories, but there was also like the 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 triumphs, the like small victories, you know, of of getting there, of feeling like, oh, I'm going to have this new life, I'm going to have this new chapter, I'm going to be brave and out, and then it's not quite happening um, the way it was expected to be, and then eventually come, um, yeah, ups and downs. It was a very very emotional read. Wayne. Well, uh, it's not the first time I've heard a story like George's, having listened to a lot of people uh, talk about abuse that they've been party to in a psychiatric setting. And in my talking to authors, uh, I do ask about their journey to acceptance of being queer, and several have similar stories told. When I read that, I was sad for George that he was not in control of his destiny and yet happy that he could tell us about it. And then at the end, joy for George because the experiences helped shape a life that wrote that book. It's rare. Lots of people that go through the same experiences don't end up popular authors. Some of them end up dead at their own hands because they feel they're the only person like that. Right. And I hope that this book can reach out to people who are similar and think, I'm the only one. And they can read this experience and say, I'm not the only one in a light of hope or something to, to bring down the anxiety about differences and self-shame and uh, could produce maybe another successful journalist author. That'd be great. So sadness, hope, and joy for me. And now that we've read the book, who would you say is the target audience? And we'll start with Wayne. Well, um, I think the obvious answer would be people like George. Uh, I don't fit that category. I mean, I grew up gay, but I did not grow up black. Um, from my discussions with people, his story sounded very authentic. I don't know if it's 100% authentic, but from what I know about the communities, it felt very authentic. Uh, it would be nice if the target audience could be people who are not George, people who are open-minded and want to learn about George and that life so that they know how their actions impact or affect other people who are not like them. But I think we all know those aren't the people that are going to read the book, unfortunately. The ones who really need to read it are ones who aren't going to read it. Uh, so in answer to your question, I, I think it's the Black queer community is the obvious target audience. And I have to say, I fit that. I am Black and I am queer, but I'm not a man. And there were some elements that are specific to being a male in this. I definitely saw myself at times, but there were others where it's like, yeah, that 
I wouldn't have any idea how to navigate that situation. And some of the response to queerness can be a lot more violent and aggressive in opposition to a black male. Women, it's far more acceptable for them to be queer than it is for men. And I can't really answer why that is, but I am aware of it. And it's one of those reasons I'm glad I read this because it's a reminder. Yeah, there are all different types of stories and it's good to remember why this one, you know, why someone would respond this way because why someone would have that much fear because this is how people respond. Blake, what do you think is the target audience? Uh, yeah, just to build on what Wayne said, I agree, I agree what, with uh, how he's put it. I, I think it's definitely like a young adult market. I think the writing was set up for that. Um, the way it kind of talks about college and that experience, um, I think, yeah black and queer community um but like it'd be great if like a uh, young adult of all kind of um backgrounds could read it because i just think the it's really about finding one's identity finding one's voice um navigating those spaces um it kind of made me think what you said there about the intersection of gender it made me think about gender queer and that interesting journey about going between these different roles and um, identities. Um, it was interesting for George to talk about um, slipping into um, femininity and masculinity. Um, so, yeah, I feel like from that perspective of exploring gender as a construction, social construction, I think a young adult audience is, is really good because it's, I think it's an important conversation for people to have or to think about. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading it. I'm glad I read it. I think everyone should read it. And yeah, especially the people that don't think it should exist should read it or have it read to them. Um, uh, yeah, the young, it's a, it's a, I, I definitely saw it as a young adult book. And Brandon, you put it on the bookshelf. What do you think is the target audience? Yeah, and that's what's interesting about it, too, is a lot of the conversations that you see that are for banning this book will say kids should not read this. This should not children. This is pornography. Children should not read it. Well, it's not for children. It's not a middle grade book. It's not next to Harry Potter. It is a young adult nonfiction book. And um, young the young adult range is, you know, what, 16 and above, sometimes 14 and above, but most young adult readers are actually 18 and over. I think the the mean, uh, the median, median age is like in the 20s, sometimes early 30s. And for me, I think people that should read this book are young adults who are um, maybe not struggling, but just like coming to terms with sex, their sexuality, their queerness, their transness, because there is a lot of transness in this book as well. Um, just kind of discussing the way that George sees themselves um, as a woman at certain points and and kind of journeying through that. So no matter where somebody ends up in their uh, you know gender journey, it's all very helpful information. But I think also people that are adults could find this book very healing just to read what was going on maybe simultaneously as they were living their lives around the same age or older. Um, I think it's very, uh, it could just be a very cathartic sort of thing to go, yeah, yeah, I was doing that too. How about that? We were doing the same thing and we just 
didn't know it. And this is how you navigated. And this is how I, and look at us, you know, like that sort of a thing. Um, so I think there's um, some catharsis in this book and, and it could be very healing for um, queer adults to read. And I think it's very, it could be very informative for um, non-queer people and non-black people and people that maybe are not in these pages to just experience somebody else's life. It's the same reason, um, you know, Moonlight won an Academy Award. That's not everybody's life but there's there's humanity in it you know and so you can see yourself in in that humanity and i think it's the same thing with this book um i think everyone should read this book that's my target audience i would recommend it to anybody all right well we'll start with you for this last question what are the reasons people should pick up this book what are the lessons that can be learned what are the conversations that can start I think the conversations that can start is uh, one, you're never too old to explore your sexuality or gender or whatever you have inside. Um, you know, like George said, they're still on this sort of journey and learning about themselves. There was no definitive answer at the end of the book of this is who I am and this is who I will be forever. I think, um, you know, we were talking about earlier that after the book came out in the bio, their pronouns said he, him. And then there was a, a tweet after that said, mm, I'm now going by they, them. Right. Um, so that journey is ongoing and there's no stopping point. So I, I think that it's. Um... Sorry, now I'm forgetting the question. <laughs> what, for, are the, what are the conversations that can happen conversations. Of this? Yeah. and that is one of them because yeah. throughout this throughout our conversation we have gone from they them pronouns to he him pronoun we just read a book where he was saying him That's well true. now they says them <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And so that's we're the supportive, but we're still struggling to make the switch. Yeah. And like you mentioned earlier, that family can be supportive and your friends can be supportive. Your your readers can be supportive without getting everything right. You know, and it's going to sometimes take time. And I think that's part of a conversation we can have. I think the conversation of what um, what are we not used to seeing on the page versus what should actually be there and what. Mm -hmm. Um, do, what are the implications of that for people to read this at a certain age? And um, will that help them as far as um, learning empathy for others? And, you know, there's so many conversations that this book opens up. And I hope that teachers and librarians and anyone who can, you know, reach the youth or reach queer people um, can use this as a teaching tool in the future, you know, and, and understand, you know, say, oh, it's on the banned book list. Let me figure out why. And let me try to bring it out for people. Blake, you bring an interesting perspective to this because of your studies. What do you think are the reasons people should read this book and what conversations can be started? Yeah, well, I, I like what we were saying earlier about the focus on the emotions um, and how they were navigating consent and agency um, over the more kind of gratuitous kind of sexual descriptions. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, the fact that we we we're we're hearing George's feelings, emotional processes, um, as they evolve, um, is really important because I think that's where it actually has a wide audience. Because yeah, it's for a young adult audience as they may be navigating those things at the time, but also yeah, for older um readers like ourselves yeah it could be cathartic because maybe you didn't have that exact experience maybe you didn't have a similar experience but just to be able to connect with the emotions you know we all feel those 
things um, through different experiences. So yeah, the felt experience with the, that lived experience, I think is really beautiful. And it goes back to what we were saying before about just having a broader idea of humanity, of the of the tapestry of um, people, um, developing empathy and self, self-empathy as well, because you, you're, you're, you're seeing a very honest story and seeing someone being able to speak their truth, live their truth, and um yeah it's just humanizing and it's 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 uh improves the way that we can relate to one another um and i think i think we we just need more of that but to be able to relate to one another better mm. wayne wow i what's left to be said i think <laughs> like pretty much covered everything um i'm reminded of uh one of the folks I spoke to for the podcast, Samuel R. Delaney, Chip Delaney, science fiction writer, he won a Lammy Award a couple of years ago for his book Big Joe, which I think was a um, it was a, a graphic novel, um, and in it he he related his story of his first sexual event which took place in a movie, the back of a movie theater in the mid 20th century with a group of other black men. And it is what helps ring true George's story. It's like, okay, your story is not unique. I've heard similar stories. And the word that comes to me, as you said, what kind of person should read this? A curious person, somebody who wants to go beyond what they see every day. What isn't me? And I think anyone could read this book if they're open-minded and get to see a life that's not theirs and get to know what a person went through that they didn't have to. I had a fairly privileged life as a child and i did not go through what george and his family went through so to read it for me i got to learn what that's like so that when i encounter other people who've had similar lives i at least have some understanding and can be somewhat empathetic towards what they went through versus what i went through and um yeah like brandon says everybody should read it the one thing that we didn't talk about that I would like to at least bring up before we go yeah. is because of the overt sexuality in it, I can understand that some parents may not find it suitable for their children. And as a parent, that's their choice. Um, I would have a hard time telling someone, please don't read this book. But if you're going to read this, please understand, here's a few things in here you might want to think about, like we were talking about having labels or trigger warnings or something like that. Um, so I, I think anyone over the age of 18 who gets to make their own decisions should read this to learn about a life that isn't theirs and have some understanding of things that go on in other people's families that aren't yours. What do you think of parents reading the book with their children? I always advocate for that. If if somebody feels very badly about a book, yet they want their child to understand or, or have experienced it, yes, sit with them and explain 
how this affects them and discuss what happens and be there to answer the questions. Because this is definitely going to generate a question. If a 12-year-old reads this book, they probably don't know a lot of, especially a, a, a non-Black 12-year-old, they don't know a lot about what goes on in the neighbor's houses or across town. And so there's hopefully going to be lots of questions. And if the parent can help discuss the differences and explain different people do things differently and the way we do things isn't the way everybody does it. I Yes, absolutely. I just wanted to add something to that also is my kind of secret hope is I remember being a 13 year old going through a library or a bookstore just hoping I'd find some sort of gay something anywhere. Like I, you know, I remi remind, uh, I'm reminded of reading um, My Secret Life by an anonymous author who I think they have proved was written by some like English aristocrat or something. And it details an entire sexual history. And I, it's like this thick, like a mass market paper bound. And I found any bit of gayness and I was like, I'm buying this. So my secret hope is that there's going to be um, a young adult who's going to go through that bookstore and maybe not with their parent, maybe their parents not supportive, or maybe they just are trying to like figure this out. And I know we have the internet now, so we don't have to, you know, scour bookstores for anything that looks like it may be gay. Um, but if they're trying to find themselves, I hope they do find this book. And I, you know, even though it's, it's, it can be pretty detailed and pretty emotional. Um, I hope that they sneak it under their pillow and go, Oh my goodness. Okay. This person turned out. Okay. Maybe I'm going to turn out. Okay. too. That's a very important point that sometimes parents are not okay with their children reading this material. And it's the very thing those kids need to read that I am out there somewhere. There are others like me. I'm not alone. I'm not a freak for going through these thoughts. Like it is okay to be like me. And sometimes parents won't support them in being who they are. And so that's how we end up with those, those tragedies where people decide, well, I guess I shouldn't be here anymore. No, I read something recently that the sparks, and I hope I've got the right, I think this was Toni Morrison who said, if you don't find the book you're looking for, you must write it. Yes. That and was it feels like George took that advice and wrote that book that he didn't find. Yes. And I believe George actually quoted that saying that. Oh, maybe that's where I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Blake, any final thoughts on any of this? No, no, I've just really loved um, being part of this panel and hearing um, everyone's perspective on it. And um, thank you for bringing me into it. It's been a very good read. It was a, sometimes it was a hard read. Like Wayne says, there's a lot of joy in it as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm glad to have read it. Yeah, I just finished it today. So it's still very, um, it's still settling in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I, to have done it. I love it. the you. elements of joy. It's not just trauma, there's joy too. And that's so I had the, um, I listened to the audio book and it was George reading it, which was really nice to have that extra feeling, you know, mm. yeah, it's very good. That's wonderful. Well, thank you all for your thoughtful input before we wrap up, Brandon, where can people find you and support your work? Uh, you can find me at fiercestorytelling.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at fiercestorytelling. I will talk about all, all the queer books, all the, um, you know, wayward pansy stuff all sort of, you know, ends up there. They do have their own Instagrams and you can find it all through fearstorytelling.com or at fearstorytelling. Blake? 
Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, um, at Blake Biles, B-L-A-K-E-B-Y-L-E-S. Um, look out for our genderqueer episode from last year. That was really good. And um, I'm just in that Comics in Motion uh, multiverse of podcasts. <laughs> Wayne. I said it before, but I'll say it again. Queerwords.org. It's a Queer Words podcast. Conversations with queer identified authors about their works and lives. Well, that's it for today's conversation. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like, share, comment. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for reading. <laughs>